0: Hi, this is Serendipity Soup It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires Because, frankly, they're not normal So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags Instead, it's a community of ordinary people With something interesting to say about how their life has turned out if that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soup of serendipity or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges and this month I'm talking to Andrew Finlay. Andrew is the owner of Wild View Retreat, an amazing wellness centre set in the middle of the hills of southern Portugal. There's a link in the show notes if you want to take a look. He's a nutritional therapist and has at various times also been a dive master, environmental consultant and head of environmental protection for the Marshall Islands. I would say the main theme of my discussion with Andrew is the tension between being driven to do certain things in your life and career and paying a high emotional and sometimes physical price for doing so. Some of Andrew's experiences are frankly pretty extreme and now that I'm recording this introduction actually it occurs to me that there's some similarities with Oliver Dudley's story in episode 14. Andrew readily admits that while he has a strong need to feel that he's doing something worthwhile with his life, following that desire, often without thinking about the consequences, has given him both extreme highs and worrying lows. He's a very forward-looking person, someone who feels that life's too short to put up with situations that don't make you happy, and that if you want to feel good about yourself, you should always be ready to move on to the next chapter in your life. As you'd expect, I challenge him, hopefully fairly gently, on that, And at one level it makes sense, but when is enough enough? When does making a fresh start tip into giving up because things have got a bit tricky? That said, I think it's fair to say that Andrew isn't into giving up when things get tricky. You don't buy an abandoned hilltop village in Portugal and turn it into a fully functioning retreat complete with running water and electricity if you quit at the first sign of trouble. But Andrew's reflections on the cost of being this driven are fascinating. On which note, housekeeping. There is a lot of discussion of mental health in this one, especially depression, and Andrew also talks in some detail about the deaths of both his father and one of his best friends. So, if that's not something you want to hear about right now, I'd suggest probably giving this whole episode a miss. There's very little in the way of swearing, but you might hear Andrew accidentally knocking his microphone a couple of times, and there's a random phone ringing right at the end. I hope that doesn't detract too much from your enjoyment of this episode, but of course, it's all in the slightly anarchic spirit of amateur podcasting, or at least that's what I'm telling myself. Right, with that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup.
1: My name's Andrew, Andrew Finlay, and I am the owner of Wildview Retreat in Portugal. I'm also a nutritional therapist, and some people know me as Finn. I was called Finn for a long time, my last name being Finlay, but more recently, most people are calling me Andrew.
0: The Worldview Retreat, I've seen it online. It looks idyllic and amazing. What's that about? Is it, It's a yoga retreat, have I got that right,
1: or is it more than that? Yeah, yeah, it's a wellness retreat. It's not defined into any specific genre. It's basically a place secluded in nature, sort of isolated, where people can come from any walks of life and have an amazing week away from the stresses and strains of what's going on back home and immerse themselves in a program of wellness. But it's not particularly extreme. So we do a bit of everything. There's a bit of yoga, there's a bit of meditation, there's nutrition, nutrition's at the forefront, really, fitness. And basically, it's just a fantastic opportunity to recharge the batteries and uh, go home feeling rejuvenated and several years younger. Been a bit of a labour of love the last few years, but finally it's starting to, to do really well and uh, we're really excited about it. Great, and you say we, who are the other people, who's the other person involved? <laughs> yeah, I said I said we, I, d- I don't really know why I said that, because there's really literally just me, but that's doing my wife a a disservice because erica we've been married nearly five years now i couldn't have done it without her when i was literally on my knees a year or two into it ready to throw the towel in she came and bailed me out basically emotionally mentally and so behind every decision i make is always is always erica who has played a massive part in the background in getting the project over the line so i guess yes it's us the two of us really And the the retreat is in which part of Portugal, is it? So it's in the Algarve and only about 10 or 12 minutes from a a town called São Bras do Alportal, which has all the amenities and everything we need if we ever need anything. So it really is a fantastic place because it's easy to get to, yet it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. 30 years ago, I thought, the Algarve was literally just golf courses and brits abroad getting wasted but actually it's it still is I don't know. well I think I it, it probably is yes <laughs> it is it's, but but you don't have to go too far to find just most wonderful places it really is quite diverse and so yes it's about it's 40 minutes directly north of Faro and suddenly you go into the Algarve mountains and there's you know there's no one else around it's fantastic
0: that that's interesting because you've chosen this quite isolated well relatively isolated spot surrounded by forest and that that comes with consequences as well as with benefits i guess
1: yeah yeah totally i mean i had no idea what i was getting myself into i really didn't like so many people i think who embark on these things and i guess being immersed in nature with the potential risk of fires is just one tiny 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 fraction of of the things i've had to think about and try and manage to be honest that was never even on my radar and was only a tiny part on my radar really I think I was very ignorant and very naive when I embarked on this. Pretty gung-ho. There wasn't that much due diligence involved in thinking. And I just went for it because I felt like if I didn't go for it, I just felt like it would be an absolute disgrace not to take the opportunities <laughs> that were presented by the universe at that time in front of me. And I would have always regretted not going for it. I was 40 at the time, i 45 now, obviously. Approaching forty, so I was of an age where I could endure and hopefully be a bit more resilient to the stresses of what I was about to undertake. But I, ha- I hadn't really realised. But it, the place, the ruins that I bought—I mean, I got them for a steal. But the reason why I got them for a steal is because the price just kept coming down, down, down. Because everyone else was far too sensible to go for it. It'd <laughs> been on the market for five or six years, and everyone came to look at it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a perfect place for X, Y, and Z. But actually, okay, there's no water. Electricity hasn't been upgraded for 30 years, and it's, there's not enough power. It's the middle of nowhere. Who's going to come up here? There's a huge amount to be done to make it viable to live in. And I didn't really think of any of that. All I thought about was the fact that this is the perfect location for running retreats. I had actually spent nine months volunteering on retreats all around the world when I quit my job, my corporate job. And I volunteered for Work Away. I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's basically an organisation where you can be placed with various families or small companies around the world to offer your skills and services to them in exchange for a board and accommodation. So I didn't really have anything to offer, but I basically chopped up carrots and cleared out compost toilets for the best part of a year for these retreats, basically, different types of retreats all around the world in exchange for yoga class a day. But I wasn't really doing it for the yoga. I was doing it to escape the corporate life and just have get my life back again and feel free, which was amazing. But at the same time, I was slowly absorbing what they were doing and how they were doing it and slowly starting to generate this idea that maybe I could do something like this Mm. or maybe I could do it and I could use take this part from this group and I could learn and take this part from the other group. And basically the prerequisites I came out of with that experience was... I needed to find an unbelievable location with nobody else around for as far as the eye can see. So I didn't really no neighbours, no roads, no cafes nearby. It had to be complete seclusion and isolation so that guests can feel completely immersed in the experience that they're having and not associating with back home by shops nearby, for example. It had to have a number of foundations within which to build, because if you just have one building plot you can't build the guest bedrooms separately. You can't build the yoga studio separately. You can't build the staff accommodation separately. So finding a plot that had a number of different foundations, so that was always challenging. And then the well, the, the third thing was close proximity to a low-cost airport. Again, I never expected to find somewhere within 40 minutes of Faro Airport. I thought it would be more like an hour and a half. And certainly when I was looking around Spain initially, you know, I wasn't getting anywhere near an hour and a half from the Alicantes and the and the Merciers and stuff because everything's already been built and saturated over there but when i came to portugal there were still opportunities to do this sort of thing which was amazing and then the final thing was staffing getting the right personnel and characters supportive friendly nurturing nourishing personnel that yes they can put on a yoga class yes they can do a nutrition consultation yes they can do a great hit fitness class whatever that's like a given but that's about 30% of what I ask of them. The the, the 70% is, are you a decent person? Are you a nice person that's going to hold space and have a great time and support their guests? And that ultimately is the thing that I got the most out of my experience of going on retreats when I was down in the dumps and at a bit of a crossroads in my life. And I love that about the retreat because you get people from all over the world, different ages, different sizes, races, cultures, and everyone can learn from everybody. Rather than that, group of five mates that you hang out with in London or Manchester or whatever and that's all who is the only people you ever speak to and that's the only perspectives you ever get. Nothing's ever perfect but I feel like I found something that allows me to finally take the foot off the accelerator and settle and go okay I'm really enjoying this now because I've been someone who's always struggled to stay content and sustained by a certain chapter in my life. In fact I have a frame on my on my wall which is empty, no photo in it, and it says chapter 14. And that represents the various chapters of my life and the fact that you should never say stuck in one chapter and always think about what the next chapter may be. But for now, I feel like this could be a prolonged one that could keep me quite happy for a while. So I'm really enjoying it. And I love the fact that guests go away motivated, inspired to make positive, healthy changes in their lives. I just find it so rewarding, and I love it. It sounds amazing. I love the idea of
0: the chapters. What a great idea that it's actually just a blank frame and it just says chapter 14. And so the the last podcast I did, or maybe it was the one before, it was with a lady who's done a variety of different jobs. So her name's Camilla. And I said to her, what's your definition of success? This is a usual question at the end. She gave an answer which a lot of people I interview give, which is around a kind of balance of happiness with doing something that you enjoy. But she also added this caveat. She was like, it's got to be something you enjoy doing at the time. And that doesn't sound much, but actually it really goes to the core of what this podcast is trying to explore, which is the idea that you can't just aim for a dream job and then you land your dream job and it is your dream job. And that's the end of the story, because you change, the world changes, the job changes, and you started off in a dream job. But at some point, maybe you have to recognise that that's not what it is anymore. And you turn the page and there's a new chapter.
1: And I'm really interested in how you how you feel about that. No, 100%. And I think, unfortunately, that's only something that we realize with life experience. But yes, when I studied to do my, I did environmental science at university, I then did a master's in tropical coastal management. So I basically have a master's in sunbathing. And I was a paddy dive master, 700 plus dives. i have to re- retract a little bit. First of all, I got a job as as an environmental consultant. So I thought, right, I'm going to get paid reasonably well, the best possible money you would probably get for working in the environmental field for a corporate company and I thought I'm going to be sent to all these different places to help improve the environmental management of these sensitive ecosystems. And I came out of my master's degree or my university degree very naive and very ignorant thinking this is what's going to happen. I landed my supposedly dream job, went to their head office in, in Epsom in Surrey, 15,000 employees around the world and I thought right I've made it, brilliant looking forward to moving up the ladder here, and I'm going to be an environment consultant sent to all these amazing places. And so I thought I was going to be sent to all these amazing places all around the world and do this awesome stuff. And basically, all I ended up doing was writing really dull reports for flood defense strategies for the Environment Agency in Portsmouth and South End and places like that. And I was like, oh my God, is this it? Is this all I'm going to be doing? And it's interesting. I could I could kind of tolerate it, for a while, mm. I thought, okay, this is okay, I'm doing okay, I'm getting paid okay. But then about three years in, I met someone and I thought, right, this is. I'm going to get married, I'm going to have children, and this is going to be wonderful. And that all came to a sudden end within about six or seven months. And the combination of that and me having zero purpose in my job anymore, just I fell off a cliff and fell into basically a year-long depression, which I'd never experienced before and I had no idea what had hit me. Because I had always been this happy go lucky guy, fun, always having a laugh in the pub and just being, you know, totally chilled. And suddenly I lost my personality, lost my character, and I just had zero motivation or inspiration to do anything in life. And I realize now it's because I put too much focus on this relationship in making me happy at the time when I was 25, 26. And also that all the other sort of pieces of the pie of my life were inadequate or not very good at the time. And I realised I like to have a purpose or something that makes me feel good and makes me feel like I'm giving back and rewarding. And unfortunately, that dream job, going back to your question, of what I thought was a dream job coming out of university turned out to be not a dream job at all. And it hit me for six, really. I was totally floored by it. because I am like, oh my God, I spent all this money on my education. I felt guilty that I'd done all these courses. And then I thought... I don't like this. I don't enjoy it. Mm. But I feel very, very grateful that I was born in a generation that is acceptable to have career changes, is acceptable to change and do different things afterwards. Because my poor father, he felt very, very privileged in the 1960s and 70s to qualify as a vet, having been born in a very poor environment, poor background in Belfast. Even though after 20 years, he absolutely hated it and it was killing him emotionally. And from stress, he never, at that time, could possibly leave or hand the, throw the towel on that job and do something different. I remember on his deathbed when he was 53, he said to me... Really? Only 53? And this has been a profound thing as to why I've made these choices. But basically, yeah. he said to me, when I was 40, I had the opportunity to be a partner in a small motorcycle parts business distributing motorcycle parts for old motorbikes and that was his passion building motorbikes he would have made half the money but he would have been happy but of course by that time he had two kids a mortgage probably loads of debt and also the stigma at the time back then that oh my god how on earth could you possibly go from being a vet to just selling motorcycle parts not that there's anything wrong with that at all but back then there probably did seem to be that and so I've always remembered that the lesson that I learned from very quickly within my first main job was that just how unhappy I'd become. And I remember my dad and thinking, he spent 15 years going through absolute misery just so he could retire at 50 and then finally enjoy his life and then died a year later or two years later. And so this has been a profound impact on me and my life choices because my motto my for life is that if something is no good and you're not enjoying it and it's not making you happy and you've tried your damned hardest for one or two years to sort it out, and this could be a relationship, it could be a job, could be a friendship, could be a marriage, it could be anything. it's not serving you, sack it off. It's not worth it because ultimately if you rip the sticking plaster off and heal yourself afterwards more quickly as a result, then everyone else around you, including the people that you're in the relationship with or the person you're in the relationship with, will be better off for it. The most important thing is to be happy and be content because if you are happy, you exude that happiness and you exude that aura around the people around you and you influence them and that energy is passed on to other people. So, yeah, it's been a real journey, but I've had three or four career changes now, but I feel fortunate that I've not tied myself up into life situations and balls and chains that make it difficult for me to end those situations. Started off as an environmental consultant, became very disillusioned with that, was depressed for a year, and in the end, I ended up embarking on my tropical career, thinking that this office-based environmental job in Surrey, working on flood defence strategies for the environment agency in Portsmouth, is really not floating my boat at all. And the fact that I didn't have a family around me and that I wasn't getting much joy out of that, how you you get joy out of having a family and therefore you can kind of tolerate the fact your job is pretty mediocre. Because I didn't have that and what I do on a daily basis for eight, nine hours a day was pretty important to me. And I went to see a life coach and he got me to look at, he did a bit of NLP and cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. And he got me to look at my life as chapters and movie and, and scenes of this movie, which is, goes back to this chapter 14 thing. And I was able to sort of visualize when I was most happy and most content in what I was doing and how fulfilled I was in life. And I kind of sort of imagined the, the camera on my life, filming various parts of my life, various scenes of my life, these various chapters. And the time when I felt the most happy at that time was, was when i previously worked abroad doing all my diving conservation work. So that's how that all started my next chapter, which was applying for jobs. I mean, I had a master's degree in tropical coastal management. I had a lot of environmental conservation experience under my belt. I was a chartered marine scientist at the time. And amazingly, I ended up landing this dream job as the head of the Environmental Protection Authority in the Republic of the Marshall Islands in Micronesia.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. As you do.
1: (laughs) So another dream job. Fantastic. I mean, I didn't even know where it was before I went there. But basically, you could not get anywhere further away than the Marshall Islands, the Majuro Atoll. Basically, it's a group of atolls. You might have heard of Bikini Atoll. It's one of the most famous atolls in the world where they do all the nuclear testing. Americans do all the nuclear testing. It's basically just a whole series of atolls, which are fringing reefs that would have previously been surrounding a volcano. The volcanoes, over millions of years, submerged into the ocean, leaving a fringing circular reef, and then little islands of sand accretes on the fringing reef, forming these little keys, ultimately leaving these atolls. So, Marshall Islands are is just a series of these tiny little sand keys in the middle of nowhere. And I went out there for on a two-year contract to try and overhaul the environmental management of the Environmental Protection Authority and the whole government, basically. And wow, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> right. I, really, I really didn't. It was an amazing job because what it did do for me, Matt, was it restored my confidence and my sense of purpose. And probably about three or four months into that, I noticed my mojo was coming back. I noticed mm. that my confidence and my, my depression was subsiding which is really interesting. I don't like to be defined by my job, I don't like to be defined by my purpose, but I realize as a man in particular, I really need to feel like I'm getting out of bed and doing something with my life, otherwise I can quite quickly fall into a dark place. Unfortunately, as a result of that need or that dopamine deficiency, or whatever you want to call it, I've been driven to take on fairly extreme things in my life, often to my detriment, because they ended up being too full on and this was the first experience of that where I chose to go and take this supposedly dream job in the Marshall Islands and yes it was a dream job I was training a team of 10 Marshallese locals to do all the diving and to do all the environmental management of the reefs and train the fishermen and all of that but I was also trying to improve the way that they handled their resources which included destroying coral reefs in order to create aggregate to build buildings. And I end up butting up against the main construction company in in Micronesia and the head of their CEO. And I found myself in pretty difficult situations at times where I kind of feared for my life at times. I mean, it's a small island, there's no British consulate, there's no embassy. I could easily have been disposed of. I ended up uh, taking the first ever environmental court case to court, to the high court ever in the history of the islands, to prosecute this construction company for environmental damages, the first ever environmental damages that ever been through the Marshallese court. But I was going up against a massive power because they employed the largest workforce in the whole of the country, more than the government. Everybody worked for them, pretty much. I became pretty much one of the most hated people on the island because I was just this this guy. It was scary. And I felt, what have I got myself into here? I ended up having a horrendous situation where I broke my leg, compound fracture and open dislocation of my leg, and I had to be air evacuated off the island. And I was away for six months trying to save my leg from being amputated. (laughs) It's another story. But then eventually I got back to the island just in time for the final court case proceedings. And we won the case. It's quite remarkable that it was won. And they got a a big fine and a suspended sentence, and not, not huge, but it set a precedent for environmental issues, so that people couldn't just literally bulldoze over environmental issues anymore, and they had to take them seriously, because we'd set a precedent that, that these were important factors. But I guess my legacy there was that we'd started a process where environmental issues were being taken seriously, but I also got myself into a pretty precarious situation where Got pretty vulnerable, and then when I broke my leg, playing football, this American guy came sliding through on my standing leg, and that was horrific. They couldn't fix it. My leg was open and broken for two and a half weeks. I ended up being evacuated off to Hawaii to find out that my worldwide medical cover didn't cover me for America. Me and my friend Brett, he carried me all the way to Australia. Eventually, ended up in Australia three days later whilst they battled to save my leg from being amputated because it was so badly infected. I ended up on a reality show, Channel 7's reality show, called Medical Emergency, as they tried to save my leg. It's crazy. Anyway, eventually I came back and we won the court case, but it's a really awful situation. But my friend Brett, who carried me all the way there, my flatmate, an Australian guy, an amazing guy, a few days later when I came back, he ended up sadly tragically drowning in a freediving accident. And ultimately, all of these things has massively shaped my decision making I nearly lost my leg my best friend out there drowned and that situation with my dad and I just feel like life is too short to spend any more than a year or so trying to solve things if they if they're not serving you because you never know what's going to happen but just retracting one slight little bit I realized that I have been driven by certain deficiencies whatever you want to call it in my genes my genetics which means that I sometimes have made choices that have contributed to some pretty extreme situations and put me in vulnerable positions. And whilst I've learned a lot from them, and it's been a great life experience, now that I'm with my wife Erica of five years, I've certainly curtailed and learned that I need to make sensible decisions with some due diligence involved now, because it's not just me involved, it's my wife, and that's my priority, is a happy, healthy life with my wife and not just being a selfish me. Because Brett died, it was huge for me, So watching mm. him die there in front of me, trying to save oh God, his you life. you were actually
0: there when it happened.
1: Yeah, so he carried me with my broken leg to Australia nine months earlier, and then I carried him in a coffin back to Melbourne. And it was huge, it was huge. And I realised that I was done with it. I had also experienced environmental conservation at the front line, and mm. I also became very disillusioned Brett dying and me breaking my leg—it's like this is not a place I want to be if I have an incident again I want to be mm. close to a hospital so I decided that I needed to get back to London and get a proper job so I kind of said to myself right I need to have a bit of normality in my life and I felt this sort of brainwashing of myself that I need to get a decent job I need to find a girlfriend I need to get a house and all those societal things that they say, or people say, or I say to myself that I needed in order to become established. I need to stop trying to chase this dream of saving the world and living in these extreme places. And so inadvertently I ended up coming back and just shooting myself massively in the foot because I came back into a corporate world, ended up working for the Crown Estate and environmental planning of offshore wind farms, which is a great job. It was a great job and I loved it, but ultimately in my thirties for six years, all I did was get up, get on the tube, go to work, do some planning of a wind farm that might happen in 20 years' time, but really depended on which government was in at the time and whether they were going to fund it or not and if they were going to cut the funding. So you had no idea whether it was going to happen or not. Go to the gym at night and swipe left on internet dating because I, I felt like I needed to get a girlfriend. I felt like I needed to do all these things, and I was utterly miserable. And that's when my next sort of bout of kind of unhappiness came. I didn't have much problem with meeting a girl, But keeping hold of a decent one was hard, and I realised then that I was repelling opportunities in my life again. I'd gone from being someone who was attracting things into my life because I was happy and I was excited and I was a joy to be around to suddenly very closed and negative and I was repelling everything, not just girlfriends, job opportunities, friends, everything. So again, another lesson to me was... Do what makes you happy. If that's becoming a barber, do it. Whatever you want, if that's traveling around the world, do it. Because as long as you're happy, the people that you interact with will feel that happiness and benefit from that as well. And so, after six years at the Crown Estate, I had an opportunity to to be made redundant. And I bit their arm off. (laughs) (laughs) I bit it off so hard. Thank you very much. I'll take that money. And that's when I started the whole retreat thing, because I'd been on a retreat during my six years in London, pretty lost, pretty disillusioned, not really sure what I was doing with myself, at a crossroads. And for one week in that year, I felt freaking awesome. I felt like my brain fog and my brain inflammation had disappeared. Like, for example, back then I used to drink massively. I used to smoke occasionally, ate shy. I didn't really, I didn't really have a clever clue about that stuff but it was around about the 10 year anniversary of my dad having died of bowel cancer. I realized age about 35. I was like, Oh my God, I'm about 15, 16 years away from when my dad copped it. And so if I've only got 15 years left of my life, combined with the fact that what I'm doing right now, I'm freaking miserable. It's like, what am I doing? What am I Mm -hmm. waiting for? Get on with it. But perhaps don't do something as extreme as the Marshall Islands thing or do something different. So I ended up, Just having a wonderful year, volunteering in these retreats, feeling fantastic. No responsibilities, no emails to reply to. It was a wonderful sense of freedom, and the ball and the chain had been moved, and I felt fantastic. started getting into my own health. I enrolled at the College of Naturopathic Medicine to retrain in nutrition, and that's where my journey started, really. And I've been on this slow journey of ensuring that I stay healthy and I enjoy what I do. But what's fascinating is, is also I end up meeting Erica and not putting her off because I was in a happy place.
0: So the, the, the phrase that's been used for me is self-sabotage. The, the idea that when you're not in a happy, or even maybe happy is too far, but if you're not in just a kind of reasonably settled mental state, that you, you tend to do things that almost lead you to confirm the negativity that you're feeling inside you so so for example if you're thinking to yourself oh i just know we're going to end up having an argument about such and such a thing then you almost find yourself subconsciously creating the situation that leads to the argument that you were convinced you were going to have it becomes self-fulfilling almost but is that is that the kind of
1: scenario that you're talking about yeah i just know that most of my decisions ultimately have been driven by being at the bottom of a pit and being unhappy, and having experienced what happened to my dad, not being prepared to sit there any longer than the time I'd wasted already. All I've learned in my experience is that life (laughs) hits you for six at times, and that's inevitable. And there's periods in your life, multiple periods, where you feel down, and if you are predisposed, like I am, you could end up falling into serious anxiety and depression like a lot of people can be. And if you're in that situation, it's important to observe it, to acknowledge it, and to try and not spend any longer in that pit or that dark cloud than you need to be in order to learn from it. That involves Mm. the support that's needed, whether it be counselling or therapy or, or antidepressants or anything like that, or changing your environment and your lifestyle and changing the situation. And it's been a combination of those things that's helped me. I was very naive. I originally thought all I have to do was change countries, change location, change jobs, and that will sort me out. And that was the first time it happened when I went to the Marshall Islands, and within three months I was feeling fantastic. That's the lesson I learned then, was that, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. I just wasn't happy in that situation, and I just need to change my job or change my life each time this happens. But the subsequent period of time has happened again since... And actually, since meeting Erica, who's taught me so much, is that actually I need to do the work on myself. Because then the next time it happened, I thought, well, maybe it's 50% me. And maybe it's 50% the work-life situation. And now I realize it's actually 95% the work I need to do on myself. And yes, the tools that you can use will help you, like changing job, changing purpose, changing relationship. Anything that's toxic, yes, get rid of it. The same if you have a parasite, you want to get rid of it. It's the same if you have a toxic... This narcissistic boyfriend or wife or whatever, yeah, just get rid of it. Or a boss, absolutely. You get rid of the toxicity, but then you've also got to heal yourself, right? You've got to do the work on yourself. So that's basically the process I've been embarking on the last six or seven years with the nutrition, with the meditation, with the yoga. I'm just a normal guy. I'm not some extreme kundalini yogi specialist or anything. I just do a bit of these things and it helps me. But getting a decent work-life balance has been absolutely critical for me. I kind of feel like I wish I'd known all this stuff 20, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, but then I'd have nothing to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to, you described yourself as, and I've, I've written it down to make sure I got it right, you've described yourself as naive and ignorant when you were talking about setting up Wild View. I thought that was a bit harsh. I, I know where you're coming from on it, but and I also think that maybe you have to be. Maybe at least you have to be a bit unaware of what's coming over the horizon, otherwise you maybe never would have taken it on in the first place. I just want to link that back to the Marshall Islands side of things, which is that there you were doing an amazing thing, taking on very powerful interests, some personal risk to to yourself and certainly to your mental and physical health. And it's not as extreme what you're doing with Wild View, but there's the same risk there, which is that if that had all gone wrong, then you would have mentally, I would imagine that would have had an impact on you. Financially, it would have had an impact on you. And so there's that thing where you've got to push yourself to take these risks, to try things, to, to be happy, because your description of working the nine to five at wherever it might be wasn't very compelling in terms of how happy it made you. So, how do you balance that? The the putting yourself out there, the taking the risk that may in fact lead you to being unhappy rather
1: than happy. It's a really interesting yo yo ebb and flow that I've been through in the last 20 years. And you hit the nail on the head there with that. I think personally, my decisions have been driven by my nervous system, my endocrine system, which is my hormonal system internally, which ultimately shapes our character and personality and behavior, whereby. The reduced amount of dopamine that I produce and the fact that I metabolize it very well because I've done all my nutrigenomics and epigenetics studies on myself, I understand fully my genome and how my genetics work. I am driven to make decisions on choices in life that will give me a sense of purpose so that I feel good about what I'm doing with my life on a daily basis. And for whatever reason, I completely block out the consequences, or have done. I don't even think about it. I just do it. I don't even mention this, but I also, during my broken leg recovery, I end up watching Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor on motorbikes going around the world and thinking, oh, that looks like a good idea. Mm. I would like to do that, but on a bicycle. So as soon as I recovered from the use of my leg, I flew to Alaska and rode a bicycle from the Arctic Ocean all the way down to Panama, eight months on a bicycle. Didn't think about the consequences, just do it. And so you go back to this point, naive and ignorant. I think it is. I don't beat around the bush there. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not worried about what that, that, what connotations of that. There's a complete ignorance and naivety, but you're absolutely right. If I was worried about being kidnapped by robbers in Guatemala or any of the things that could have happened... Or any things that have happened, like, for example, the marshalls the fact that they struggled with the water, electricity, and all these other things that have happened in the Wild And, of course, I, never, I, I might not have done them, but the, the things that I've chosen to do have got me out of the hole that I was in previously, which is interesting.
0: So you trusted yourself, basically. You trusted yourself that, yeah, this is a big thing, but whatever happens, I'll kind of face it. And...
1: I, I, was, I wasn't even as intelligent as that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't even think about trusting myself. It was purely driven by the fact that I want to do this. I need to do this because I know that I will enjoy this and this will be what I need to do in order for me to have an awesome, amazing life and not waste a single second of it. And I don't think about what the consequences are. Having said that, I do a bit more now that I've got Erica in my life because I don't want to put her through what I put her through in the first couple of years of Wild well View Retreat how stressful it was. It's a bit like cool. people who go and climb, I don't know, K2 or Everest and stuff. I reckon they've got, the, it's a similar sort of thing. Yes, of course, you do your preparations and you prepare, but your desire to do it And I do believe it is to do with our endocrine system being very different to others and our hormonal system and what drives us and what drives our personality and our characters completely overrides any other thought process. I know for a fact my mum, several times when I said, oh, I'm going to go and do this, she was like, oh, God, you know, just terrified. I think, oh, no, not again. And I realized the impact that it has on my mum, my poor mum and and, and the, the idea of these things. But I don't feel like I take risks for my health anymore or like like I would never climb a mountain like rock climbing and stuff like that I don't feel comfortable doing stuff like that but life experiences in terms of putting one foot in front of the other and the opportunities that those create I love that I love that and I'm not prepared to sit in a box and let life come to me and go around in circles and then die at the end I need to have a fulfilling life and enjoy it because when I'm having a fulfilling life and enjoy it then I'm a nice person to be around. But when I'm, I know for a fact from the last 20, 30 years that when I don't do that, I'm just miserable. I can be really, really miserable and not a joy to be around. And no one wants to be like, no one wants to be that person, do they? No, no,
0: absolutely not. How much do you think this, and again, I'm sorry, it's a slightly sensitive question, but I suppose it's coming from my own background as well, which is that. How much do you think the kind of financial foundation that your parents gave you allows the world view that you have and so it's a privilege question I suppose yeah. it's basically saying could you have the same mentality if you were earning a lot less and had a lot less in the bank when you started do you think or is it a mentality that is separate from your circumstances or do the circumstances allow the mentality
1: it's an excellent question, and no one's ever asked me that direct question, and I'd I'm, I'm, really happily answer that, because I think, I think it plays a huge part. I think it must play a huge part. I'm not a, I'm not a gambling man. I'm never, I was never into throwing money at something that I didn't think was a sensible decision. But I do believe that doing the whole Wild view Retreat thing has been a risk, but it was a risk purely for me. There were no other people involved that I would have been taken down as a result of my decision-making. So if I had kids in school, there's no way I would have done invested everything I have a business in Portugal on the eve of Brexit, not knowing whether that was going to be any good or not. But I've been able to make decisions purely for myself because I haven't had to worry about anybody else. And I think it's I'm just being really brutally honest here. My four or five best mates, so I don't see so much anymore because our lives just so different these days. But you know, there's no way they can make the the decisions I've been able to make because they've got other things, more important things that they need to focus on and worry about and ensure that that's that's sorted out. But going back to your question about the money, I mean, I certainly didn't have a huge amount of money, but I had enough for me. And I don't have to worry about putting money aside for a rainy day for kids or anyone else. So I had enough for me to live on and that was fine. And then Mm -hmm. the money I did have from my payout and from my savings, I just chucked it into this relatively cheap set of ruins at the time that nobody was touching because it was such an abomination in terms of the the actual <laughs> the amount of work that was needed to do to it but yeah but i think you're right i think it would be completely dishonest for me to say that i would still have been able to do these things if i didn't have a little bit of that security blanket having worked hard having had a little bit of money from my father who died etc i think it's an important point
0: I think you've covered it to, to some extent, but could you kind of distill somehow into a few
1: pithy words what you feel success is? Gosh, that's a that's a big question to, to, to distill into a few words. <laughs> but, I mean, for me, I think is following your own path, not being affected by others opinion of what you should do and just do what you want to do as long as you're not harming anybody else and that you're contributing and ultimately having a purpose and being happy because I feel like if you are in that situation everything else falls into place
0: it's been wonderful speaking to you, Andrew, and I should say as well, I wish you every success with Wildview Retreats. Retreat. It, it looks amazing. I had a, a quick look on the website before we spoke. You've got this amazing kind of drone footage of this incredible place, and I just hope that it repays you because with all the faith that you put and hard work, by the sound of it, that you and your wife have put into it.
1: Thanks, Matt. I mean, it's, it is repaying because it's repaying us in joy and happiness now, and I'm um, enjoying it. I'd certainly say the first five years I... Struggled to enjoy it because it was so hard work. But now I'm enjoying the fact that it's helping so many people and a wonderful sanctuary for people to come to. So but thank you very much for the opportunity to to have the conversation. It's a lot of points that I, I haven't really shared much. And I just think it's great to be able to share this sort of stuff. If it helps others, then that's fantastic. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Andrew for his honesty and self-reflection. Thanks also to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover work, to Anna Gunn for editing, to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. I do wonder how many people actually listened to this last bit, so uh, we'll soon find out, because I'm just trailing the fact that this is going to be one of the last episodes of Serendipity Soup. It's been a lot of fun, but it's also been very demanding on my time, and to some extent on my mental health. So, anyway... There'll be a couple more episodes, I think, although that does depend on the guests. And I was thinking of recording a episode with Anna just to kind of reflect on my experience of doing the podcast, because I think probably the podcast itself falls neatly into the subject matter of Serendipity Soup. So I think that will probably come out. Anyway, enough rambling there. It's been great doing this. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for a few last servings.